Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. This week, we inaugurate in the Week of Peace. Each of the weeks has a little sassy theme. Uh, this And that's not just like New City Church. That's like tradition, uh, you know, for thousands of years. Uh, this is the Week of Peace. And so uh, today we're going to be talking about peace, but it might be peace, approaching peace in a way that you might not initially think of, given the topic. Um, Those of you who are are following along on social media know that uh, today we're going to be talking about abortion rights because New City Church uh, is responsive to current events. When something happens in current events, We talk about it at New City Church. I preach about it. We have sacred witnessing, which is a Zoom call after worship that you're certainly invited to, um, where we kind of discuss more about it. We talk about current events in our small groups. Like we are a church who is not afraid to talk about the things that are most important to our community. And given that the Supreme Court uh, is taking up a deliberation that may very well overturn Roe v. Wade or significantly curb it, we felt like it would be negligent for us as a church to not talk about abortion rights. With that said, we know that there's a lot of people at New City Church who have significant traumas regarding lots of themes that come with uh, abortion rights, including rape and incest, sexual abuse, and uh, the process of abortion, etc. So if you are feeling triggered or you feel like, um, wow, this is getting a little too intense for me, a little too real for me, uh, feel free to stand up. Uh, you're, if you're in the onsite community, you're welcome to just join us from the lobby. Like you can just go to the lobby, grab some water. You can still hear it, but you can just kind of pace around if you need to move your body a little bit. If you're joining us online, uh, you can look outside. And if you're feeling really triggered, like call a friend or a mental health professional and just know that like, We don't expect you to just be a floating head in this conversation. Like, we know that there's a lot of stuff there. Um, And I know that for the onsite community, it can be a little awkward to stand up and go, like, to get some water or whatever. But can you just, like, snap if you agree? It's okay if you need to move or if you need to... Yeah, we're all okay with that. We're all chill with that. We'll just assume that you got a call from your... uh, grandma and (laughs) you need to answer it so uh (laughs) um so that is your content warning and by the way if you are following online this is a great time to share on social media uh that that we're talking about this because there's not a ton of churches that theologize about abortion rights so publicly and we know that you have friends who uh, need to hear this message great So um, just as a theological foundation for New City Church, if you're new to New City and you're like, I wonder how I can follow Jesus or how I relate to God. One of the theological foundations that we have is that the way of Jesus is to center marginalized voices. And what we mean by that is Jesus could have spent all day talking to the people who are the most in power. And yet when we read through the Bible, we see, see him going where? to the graveyards where someone was chained up, to the well, talking to a woman who's had like a very sordid history, um, to people who, have, who are like untouchable and have diseases. Jesus was constantly going out to the folks who were kind of pushed out to the margins in society 
And the reason why we believe is not just because he was a nice guy, which he was a nice guy, but also <laughs> because um, there is a certain like epiphany. There's a certain theophany. There's a certain revelation that happens in marginalized communities. There's a certain way that God shows up among marginalized people that God doesn't show up in the rest of the world. And so Jesus is, was trying to teach us not to like have pity on the, the pitiful uh, fools over there, but rather to realize that the, the goodness of God breaks through in marginalized communities in ways that we like need to pay attention to if we're going to say that Jesus is our savior. Like if Jesus is showing us the way to salvation, then we probably should live like him. And that means centering marginalized voices. And by the way, I didn't say this in the beginning, but if you are someone who has some privileged identities, like if you're straight or white or able-bodied or documented or uh, was born speaking English in the U.S., etc., um, that doesn't, centering marginalized voices doesn't mean that there's not a place for you. It means that, like, we're not, we're not creating the discourse around you. Like, if this were a solar system, like, privilege is not the sun, just like it is in all the other spaces of society. And one of the ways that I like to say it is um, centering marginalized voices means that marginalized people start, stop, and steer the conversation. Centering marginalized voices means that um, marginalized people get to start, stop, and steer the conversation in, in distinction from the rest of society, which at most is like what? Like we're going to have a discourse among the most powerful, and then we'll have like a footnote for what this means for marginalized people or a afterthought or, a, you know, uh, we're going to put Asian studies over there, but Asian discourse isn't going to be part of the main curriculum. You know, like th this is the ways that, um, that it happens out in the world. And we believe that Jesus was bringing in a new world by centering marginalized voices. And that means that uh, uh, we're going to start, stop, and steer the conversation with those voices. And so when uh, we're approaching this conversation about abortion, it's uh, very easy to start from like the, the folks who have the most power and then kind of think like on your way down because that's how it's talked about all the time. However, uh, as a, someone who's trying really hard to follow Jesus, <laughs> my qu uh, the question for me is always like, so what does this mean for women, especially black women and indigenous women? What does the question of abortion mean for queer people? What does it mean for undocumented people? And what does it mean for the poor? And let's like start the conversation from what this means for folks who are like the most stepped on in society and then kind of extrapolate what this means for folks with more power in society. And the reason why that's important is because if we don't start with the marginalized folks, we tend to never get to the marginalized folks. So it's like, we're just gonna, we're just gonna whoop, clear away and talk about this first. So I did a little bit of research um, on this and I'm gonna just be reporting back a little bit of what I saw. This is all in an effort to center marginalized voices, which I believe is the way of Jesus. I know that there are folks in our community who like work in reproductive health, who work in reproductive rights, who have lots of brilliant things to say. So please, if you're online, drop it in the chat. You're welcome to join us to, for sacred witnessing. I'm not saying that I'm the only person with knowledge in the room. I'm trying to just create a framework for us to have this conversation. And the framework, uh, of, follow the framework of following Jesus is like 
centering marginalized voices. So uh, let's just kick it right off and name that uh, uh, banning abortion has disproportionate impacts for black women. Let's just start right there. Let's have that be point numero uno. Uh, <laughs> because um, uh, so uh, some things I found in the United States, the abortion rate for black women is almost five times that of for white women. And that is largely due to the wealth gap. Um, abortion legalization in the 1970s has increased black women's rates of high school graduation and college attendance. And so like we're seeing kind of this economic portrait uh, that since the legalization of abortion in Roe v. Wade in the 70s, that um, there is a certain like uh, mo uh, upward mobility, economic mobility that is a possible for specifically for black women. Um, with that said, even still though, the disparities are huge. Um, and so this is why, the reason why it's important to start with this is that it's kind of interesting because we heard um, this week that uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was like, um, did you hear the argument? She was like, well, I don't see why this is even like a thing because anyone could just go to like a police station or a hospital and just drop off a baby and then they wouldn't have to raise the baby. So why are we even talking about abortion? Because uh, we have mechanisms in place where like that person wouldn't need to raise the child was kind of the line of thinking. And um, um, I don't know. I don't, I haven't experienced pregnancy uh, personally, but <laughs> I hear from trusted sources that it's kind of a big deal to have a baby. Like it's, there's kind of like things that happen in your body that like permanently change your body. And, and it's kind of a long process and it's resource intensive and time intensive. And, um, I, and furthermore, if, as we're centering black women, like the experience of healthcare in the United States is different for white women than it is for black women. And so if we're like mandating a really serious medical procedure called giving birth for black women, then we also have to look at how um, the, the disparity, the health disparities between black women and white women are in play here. And in fact, if we look at um, the Department of Health for Mississippi, which of course, Mississippi is the state that is kind of presenting this case to the Supreme Court in the, in the first place. We see that pregnancy-related mortality ratio for black women was 51.9 deaths per 100,000 uh, live births, which is nearly three times the, white, the ratio for white women, for white, white people giving birth, I should say. And so we're looking at like an economic portrait that's really different for folks in Mississippi where this is being most deliberated, right? Where like where black women are being uh, forced to go through a medical procedure that like statistically they're more likely to die from than, than white women. Um, and so it's, I think that it kind of uh, disrupts uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett's argument because it's like, um, uh, yes, once that woman successfully succeeds in giving birth and survives that, she's able, there are certain options available to her. But even getting to that point is something that we can't take for granted, especially in the United States, especially in the poorest parts of the United States. Point two, uh, banning abortion has disproportionate impacts for the queer community. Um, so... Uh, I'm a member of the queer community and admittedly like especially since I'm a uh, cisgender man like this isn't as much of a thing that I be, was aware of uh, in my participation in the queer community from personal experience but as I research this more and more it makes so much sense. 
So um, queer people are more likely to be sexually assaulted and the rates for bisexual women and trans people are particularly high. Um, LGBTQ people are already overrepresented in this group. A 2019 survey of pregnant, trans, non-binary, and gender expansive people published in the Journal of BMJ Sexual and Reproductive Health revealed that a staggering 36% of respondents had considered trying to end a pregnancy themselves and nearly one in five, 19%, had actually attempted to end a pregnancy themselves. And so uh, what we're seeing in, in the queer community is both a higher level of sexual assault and uh, a less trust with healthcare. Like queer people in general have been underserved by the medical infrastructure because the medical infrastructure wasn't designed by out queer people who were part of the discourse. And this is particularly true for trans people. Um, in in leading up to this uh, sermon, I uh, put out a call on Circle, which is New City's social platform. You can get your free account at grownewcity.church/circle, and uh, and I, you know, we put out messages and prayer requests and things. And so I put into Circle, like, what um, if you have, if you're part of the community and you have anything that you want to say to the community on this Sunday, like, please let me know, and and we can read it anonymously, etc. And the only person who reached out was a trans man. And uh, the person who reached out said, um, trans men have a particular stake in this. By trans men, I mean um, particularly people who were assigned female at birth and then like uh, uh, are, are trans men, actually. And, um, and that designation was wrong. And so uh, trans men uh, uh, go undergo hormone treatment when they're transitioning. And that hormone treatment um, can be really uh, devastating for a baby. Like it's, you're not meant to transition and be pregnant at the same time. And so if you're undergoing through this hormone treatment, which is largely expensive, largely uncovered by healthcare, and um, already takes great like uh, endurance just to be able to get access to this, if you're already undergoing uh, transitioning and you're a trans man, man who then finds out that he's pregnant, then this puts a very difficult choice at hand if abortion is not on the table because uh, the um, disfigurement that can happen for a child during a, while a trans man is transitioning is really significant. Um, and so, uh, so then it, it leads to this parallels. But like the other thing about transitioning is that um, uh, uh, y you have to, if you start it, you kind of have to keep going. It, it, you can't like pause transitioning and pick up. It's not like the book that I've been reading over the past five years where you can just kind of like start wherever you picked off. Like it, it's a continuous thing. And so if, if you have to pause your transition, that's functionally having to start over your transition possibly. And, um, and that can be devastating financially in terms of healthcare, in terms of just like the transition that your body is going through. And so there are particular implications that like none of the Supreme Court justices are talking about. None, like none of the folks who are arguing for this are thinking about trans men. And that's why we center marginalized voices because if we don't start thinking about tra tra the role of trans men in all of this, then we might not ever get there, but they're gonna have to deal with the consequences of what like the cisgender system decided, right? And so that was um, something that someone from the community wanted to make sure was clear. Um, so there's, uh, large implications for trans men. And then also, um, just 
like this is a long quote, but basically like a lot of the healthcare that uh, that trans people receive in the U.S. is from clinics that also provide abortion services. So if abortion clinics lose funding, then a lot of the clinics that trans people use to be able to have um, health care that is dignified, that doesn't challenge their gender identity, that um, doesn't re-traumatize them, uh, that knows kind of how uh, uh, the, the discourse around trans identities, um, a lot of those services depend on clinics that are funded by uh, uh, funding that could be uh, at, at risk if abortion is at stake. D uh, point three, banning abortion has disproportionate impacts on undocumented women. Um, so uh, I did a whole bunch of reading with um, uh, organizations that do women's work on the border, and they were talking about how um, this organization, Medicines Sans Frontieres, or Doctors Without Borders, uh, surveyed undocumented women who are going, uh, coming up from Mexico. One third of the women surveyed had been sexually abused on their journey from Central America. And of the 166 sexual abuse survivors surveyed, 60% of them had been raped. So like we're seeing a disproportionate amount of sexual assault and rape for women who are already not like centered in in how we look at healthcare, like the healthcare systems are not like built around undocumented people, and yet undocumented people have like more and more th barriers to face if we were to ban abortion altogether. And as you can imagine, if you're um, coming into this country new, some of which uh, uh, don't have any documentation at all, and most of which don't have insurance, this is already like adding more and more barriers to the options that a woman might have uh, or a pregnant person might have upon entering this country. Next step, banning abortion has disproportionate impacts on the poor. Um, so I uh, wanna be clear that as I'm doing this research, it became evident to me that a ban on abortion is really a ban on poor women getting an abortion because women with means um, are able to travel to other states, other countries. Women with means are able to um, pay exorbitant doctor fees of that one doctor who will perform a procedure on the side. Women with means are able to afford um, medications that, uh, have, uh, that are not available to uh, the poor. And so, like, we're seeing that um, this ban on, on poor women, and I love this, or I thought this was an insightful quote. Uh, I, I should introduce it. So this is from, like, a uh, study of what happened economically to women who did receive or did not receive abortion services uh, after their, so this is what looked at the women economically. Um, in analyses that adjusted for the few baseline differences, women denied abortions, denied as in did not have an abortion, uh, who gave birth had higher odds of poverty six months after denial than did women who received abortions. Women denied abortions were also more likely to be in poverty for four years after denial of abortion. Six months after denial of abortion, women were less likely to be employed full-time and were more likely to receive public assistance than were women who obtained abortions, differences that remained significant for four years. So we're looking at this kind of like economic sentencing for women who uh, uh, might not have any options in the first place. And, and this disproportionately impacts the poor.
As an aside, uh, as we're talking about this, I do want to name that um, if you are someone who uh, still is not sure whether or not you support abortion or you oppose abortion, I do want to name that throughout the research, it did seem like contraception seemed to be the best thing for lowering abortion rates. A lot of the research says that contraceptions are uh, the most effective thing, uh, more than policy more than shame uh, at lowering abortion rates. And so if you're not sure like where you can go, uh, just know like this is a great thing to get behind, right? Like contraceptions. Um, so I, I just want to name that um, my commitment, my theological commitment as a Christian is to center marginalized voices and to follow the ways of Jesus. We just walked through the implications that this had for black folks, for undocumented folks, for queer folks. Um, uh, I also didn't mention that indigenous women. Uh, we, we saw <laughs> um, this past summer during the Line 3 protests that a lot of New City people participated in, we saw that there, um, because of the Line 3 activist, or because of the Line 3 being built, there is more sexual assault of indigenous women happening in northern Minnesota because of the influx of workers who are coming in, right? And so, like, we're trying to be responsive to folks who are um, facing some really perilous decisions and making sure that that decisions at the top don't unintentionally create so many barriers um, for folks who already have so many. And I just want to name that given this commitment of centering marginalized voices, that if the consensus in the black, female, queer, undocumented, and indigenous community were that we should ban abortion, then I would be like, okay, I believe you, right? Because the, the Christian commitment of like, I believe that marginalized people have a particular insight in how the kingdom of God is going to come to earth. I believe that marginalized people have uh, like God is moving through their lives in a particular way that if I don't pay attention to, I will miss out on all the activity that God is doing in the world. And, and which is another way of saying like the purpose of my life will be forfeited if I miss out on what is happening in, that, in the Holy Spirit in marginalized people's lives. And so if the consensus among all the marginalized folks was like, yeah, no, we should ban this, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to believe you in this because that is my job. <laughs> that my job is to leverage the privilege that I have and to speak up with the marginalization that I have so that the kingdom of God can look a little bit more like everyday and common and real. And so um, I think that, that that's, I wanted to name this because um, when we juxtapose the realities that I just named with the folks who are deciding on these laws, the folks who are drafting these laws, the folks who are um, advocating for these laws, we see um, a lot of the, the folks with the most power leveraging that power in order to create policies that disproportionately impact the folks without systemic power. And that to me seems like a fundamental contradiction of the gospel. It seems like not what God would want. And so um, I'm, I'm trying to uh, listen to marginalized people while also acknowledging that like the folks, a lot of the folks who are, are arguing for these laws are the same folks who um, uh, are, tend to not be supportive of LGBTQ justice. In fact, 
Same-sex marriage was brought up in the debates over this past week, observing that a lot of the arguments for same-sex marriage uh, rested on the precedents set by Roe v. Wade. Um, I'm, I'm noticing that a lot of uh, uh, a lot of the source of LGBTQ homelessness is derived from conservative families kicking their kids out of their home. Um, and I'm noticing that like a lot of the, the people who are advocating for this, um, like in Mississippi, the, the death penalty is still legal. Like the death penalty is still legal in the state that is advocating for a pro-life platform, right? And, and a, lot of, a lot of the proponents of this also have ties to the gun lobby. And so I'm <laughs> trying to understand all of this from a power analysis for the sake of the gospel. And it seems to me like uh, th that there is a certain story that is being woven here from my perspective. Now, of course, uh, you might ask, like, well, Tyler, what about the Bible? Like, the whole point of the, the, the uh, Christian right advocating for this is that they say that uh, abortion is wrong in the Bible, and, and if it says that it's wrong in the Bible, how can you as a Christian say that it's, that it's uh, something that we should make sure happens if the Bible is saying that we shouldn't? Um, so, just to be clear, um, the, the Bible does not mention abortion. The Bible does not mention abortion. Um, it mentions infanticide, which is not abortion. And so when I look at a lot of the biblical arguments around opposing abortion, uh, you know, we look at stories like Hagar. Hagar is a woman who, after she gave birth, wandered through the wilderness, and then she kind of set her child down and then went away weeping, presumably like leaving that child to die. And folks are, and then God intervened and said, no, that child shouldn't die. I'll, I'll bless uh, Ishmael. And so, um, so there is like a fundamental difference between infanticide, which is like killing a child who is like a, like, ex like is, exists and is like a physical form post-delivery and abortion, which uh, we're looking at abortion in a window of um, the window of viability, which means that uh, the window that a fetus could not successfully exist outside of the womb. And so uh, a lot of scientists are saying like 24 weeks, 22 weeks is the window that a fetus could not survive if it were outside of the womb. And so when we're talking about abortion, we have to wipe away from our heads that we're like going over to the NICU unit and like killing babies. And we have to instead shift to think about like, these are like multicellular pre-viable fetuses that if outside of the womb would not be able to survive on their own. Um, and the Bible does not mention anything about abortion in the Old Testament or New Testament, even though abortion as a procedure was around in the ancient Near Eastern times. Um, so some scholars suggest like the fact that it wasn't mentioned seems like a pretty glaring omission. Um, also, the Bible doesn't mention abortion. It does have poetry that talks about God knowing us before we were in the womb. And so we look at Jeremiah or Psalms where we're 
like if you're reading the Bible, by the way, this is just a little pro tip for reading the Bible. If you're uh, reading the Bible and you see that the way that the publishers laid it out is that there's a paragraph and then it, there's an inlay where it's like you indent half an inch and then you see lines that are like uh, spaced out like a poem that usually indicates that it is some type of poem or song written by the original authors. And so we have in both Jeremiah and Psalms these uh, poems that say, um, uh, you know, I, God knew me before I was born. God knit me together in my mother's womb. Um, so two things to observe. One, these were from like poems or songs and so should therefore be related to maybe not in like an anatomic biological way, like scientific way. It, it, I think it represents a deep truth that God knew us in, in the beginning of time, but I don't know if it is enough to make like public health policy around. And um, two, just to, if we're really going to get semantics here, all those say that God knew us before the womb. And so that suggests to me that maybe God knew us like before, for conception even and so we're not really talking about like just once you're in a mother's body but maybe like the beginning of time kind of thing like this is like god being the author of time being the alpha and the omega being the all-powerful all-knowing thing that's like eventually in 2021 there's going to be this little queer kid named tyler and like that maybe like that type of knowing is possible but i don't i don't no, if even these scripture references, which are often cited uh, by abortion uh, opponents, I, I don't know if these can conclusively say that they're talking specifically about um, a pre-born child. And lastly, some scholars interpret Exodus 21:22 as specifically that it, naming that a fetus is not a person. So Exodus 21, we're looking through uh, laws of like, hey, if a person does this, then this should happen to them. And the whole idea is like, we're trying to create proportionate justice here. This is like Moses times. And so um, in Exodus 21, just as context, we see, if someone plots and kills another person on purpose, you should remove the killer from my altar and put him to death. This is God's talking, by the way. Put him to death. And the idea was like, we're trying to, uh, at that time, it was like, if one person is murdered, then we're going to murder an entire tribe as revenge. And this law is trying to say, like, let's just get to a one-to-one -one ratio for now. Like, if someone kills someone, like, let's just murder, like, one person maybe and start with that. Um, so there, this is like in the same chapter, but later on in the chapter, we see when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that she has a miscarriage, but no other injury occurs, then the guilty party will be fined what the woman's husband demands as negotiates with the judge. And so this is the observation of the biblical scholars here is like, isn't it interesting that murder is punishable by death in Exodus 21? And yet, if someone has a physical altercation that induces the death of a fetus, that is the punishment for that is a monetary fee, not death again. And so if, so the kind of like the reverse engineering is like, presumably if uh, the fetus was considered a full person in society, then the punishment would have also been death if that was the case. Um, and so some biblical scholars say like, hey, I, it's not entirely clear that that was even the ancient world view. Um, and in more, most 
significantly <laughs> more than anything if if you get anything about how to relate to the bible from this i just want to name that the bible is not like um like a like a magic eight ball that's like tell me exactly what i need to know about any aspect of modern life and then you just get one perfect clear answer that was never how the bible worked even like contemporaneously when the Bible was written, no one was like, this is definitely going to be like a magic eight ball, right? Like the Bible was always a conversation. The Bible was always people debating each other who have had significant experiences of God who were like trying to point towards a mystery that is by definition uncontrollable and unbound by our words. The Bible is incredibly helpful, but the Bible isn't like a one-to-one -one, like Ikea helpline that's like, I don't know how to do this, so therefore I do this. I don't know how to like handle my credit card, and so let me look up the credit card section of the Bible. Like we have to, we have to like, create a larger picture of what the Bible wants, and then, and then we, it's, we're kind of on our own and figuring out the details. The Bible helps us to understand that God is a God of liberation, which is the most important truth. Like, the Bible helps us to understand that God wants all people to be free, and that God is going about transforming the world so that all people can, uh, uh, no one is oppressed, everyone is liberated, everyone has their needs taken care of, and everyone experiences abundant life. That's the most important truth. What Jesus did on the cross and the resurrection, the movement of the Holy Spirit is all in service to like how God is going about freeing us. And so, as people who love the Bible, Christians should look at the Bible and say, how can we go about the world making sure that everyone in our neighborhood, in our state, our country, and world is experiencing a flourishing life, a life of freedom and liberation? And whatever the answer is to that is the biblical response. Like the, the, method, the path towards liberation, whatever that ends up being, is in service to the biblical worldview because the Bible more than anything wants people to be liberated and free. That is the desire of God in the world. And so uh, as we uh, approach this abortion rights conversation, I hope that in your own life and in your conversations that you can center marginalized voices, um, that you can think critically about how the people of God might go about creating the work of God, the work of liberation in the world, and ultimately that we can have live into the world that Jeremiah prophesied about, the, the world that we heard about in the scripture, where people's captivity might be done, and that, that the plan for peace might fully come into fruition. Not because it was easy, but because it was worth it. <laughs> um, go in peace, my siblings. Amen.